Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Sounding Angola, radio's electrifying effects. Our opening song is the 1932 recording Feno de Portugal, a fado march, by the famous composer Cruz y Salsa, that was dedicated to a new brand of soap that had just appeared on the market. We'll explain that later. Today's show focuses on the history of radio in Angola. As an instrument for Portuguese settlers, the colonial state, African nationalists, and the post-colonial state to project power and challenge empire. Our studio guest today, Marissa Mormon, calls these distinct and sometimes overlapping interests powerful frequencies, the title of her new book, published by Ohio University Press. Its subtitle is Radio, State Power, and the Cold War in Angola, 1931-2002. to In her book, Mormon narrates some of those powerful frequencies and specific interests, like early radio clubs by white settlers, clandestine broadcasts by guerrilla groups in Angola, and Portuguese counterinsurgency strategies during the Cold War era, and how these developed the independent state's national and regional voice. It's a history of canny listeners, committed professionals, and dissenting political movements as they used radio to transgress social, political, physical, and intellectual borders. Marissa Mormon is Associate Professor of African History and Cinema and Media Studies at Indiana University. Her previous book is Intonations, A Social History of Music and Nation in Luanda, Angola, 1945 to Recent Times. And she's on the editorial board of Africa is a Country, where she regularly writes about politics and culture. And now, Sounding Angola, radio's electrifying effects, with Marissa Mormon on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange, Marissa Mormon. Thank you. First, why do we start with that soap ad or whatever it is? <laughs> <laughs> so in some ways, it is classically uh, Portuguese, right? It's, a, it's kind of a march fado is what it's called. Um, and it, it points to the ways in which in the 1930s in Portugal, um, there's the development, the growth of a new fascist state under Antonio Salazar called the Estado Novo, the new state. Um, and the ways in which he promoted certain kinds of new technologies, um, radio among them, um, film as well, um, to kind of underscore and present the Portuguese nation in a particular way. Fado was one symbol of that. Um, and kind of, you know, these marches, cruzizos, these kinds of typical marching sounds um, are another. Hmm. But it sort of also points to the ways in which that's also wrapped up with consumerism. It's a soap ad for fennel, right. for yeah. its natural hay-like smell. <laughs> it's a, a soap ad. And it's, uh, its relevance becomes uh, something of uh, just the, the sort of product of economy at the time or the product of making a state out of, out of radio itself or... Well, I mean, I think what's interesting about it is the ways in which it's we've got this fascist state in Portugal, mm-hmm. um, you know, using radio to spread its mm-hmm. message. Mm-hmm. Salazar was typically not charismatic. Um, he didn't want to mobilize the population. He tended to want to pacify them and keep mm-hmm. them calm. But he did use radio so that he could give his own speeches, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And we also see the ways in which he's trying to stimulate the economy, the idea of sure. Portugal as an agricultural nation, that mm-hmm. being a point of pride. Um, and then, of course, empire is quite important. 
important, though surprisingly they didn't. He he didn't invest very much in broadcasting to mm. the colonies hmm. for his entire thirty-six year reign or whatever. It was. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a long time. Huh? He had he had various people trying to convince him, but mm. so the interesting thing too about this song is it was the first um, song broadcast mm. on radio. Um, broadcast from Angola in the 1930s, in 1938. Well, their first introduction yeah. to, and these were settlers at the time that were hearing this primarily, these radio clubs you, you mentioned in your book? Yes. So these were um, Portuguese settlers in Angola who were living in various parts of the territory. Angola is a large place. It's roughly the size of Arizona and Texas combined. Mm. Uh, it was 14 times, is 14 times the size of Portugal. So in terms of Portuguese capacity to, you know, kind of administer that sort of a space. It was also challenging. And for settlers, it meant they lived quite dispersed from one another. So radio begins as an amateur practice, first ham radio, and then the organization of membership-based radio clubs so that people can communicate between the different Mm -hmm. places in which they're settled throughout the Angolan territory. Collapsing that very large space. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, So if you don't mind, uh, Marissa, your book has a fun cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you mind describing it and telling us why you uh, chose it? Sure. So the cover is a photograph of a wire and bead radio. It's a radio I purchased in South Africa um, in a part of Johannesburg called a neighborhood called Melville. I picked uh, picked it up on a very busy commercial street. Um, And it was made by a man who's uh, born in Zimbabwe and and immigrated to South Africa and living there. Um, And it's a working radio, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to understand without seeing the photograph. Um, (laughs) But it's a working radio. It doesn't doesn't capture a lot, but it it will play. Sometimes I take it into class. Um, But I think it kind of captures the energy and the circulation of radio in uh, the region of Southern Africa and across this period from of decolonization to a moment when the kind of the Cold War really turns hot mm. in the region. Yeah, it's fun. It looks like a, it does look like a, a just a drawing, but mm-hmm. it's an actual actual radio. Uh, I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Uh, the, our show today is about the colonizing and nationalizing identity effects of radio. My guest is Marissa Mormon, associate professor of African history and cinema and cinema and media studies at Indiana University. Uh, now, Marissa, I've asked you to read from your book. We're going to read some selections throughout the program tonight. Uh, we're going to start out with focusing a little bit on whiteness, a distinction between uh, culture and what the state is doing and sort of the, the structural racism that we're dealing with here as well. So let's, uh, let's read that section and we'll talk a little bit about uh, colonialism. I'll, I'll just start to say that the, the piece that you're going to read begins with your quoting Sarah Ahmed, who says, colonialism makes the world white, which is, of course, a world ready for certain kinds of bodies, a world that puts certain objects within their reach. Yes. And then actually, I'll just read one more sentence of Mm -hmm. that. She says, whiteness is an orientation that puts certain things within reach. Um, By objects, we would include not just physical objects, but also styles, capacities, aspirations, techniques, habits. Mm. Race becomes in this model a question of what is within reach, what is available to perceive and to do things with, unquote. So what we see in southern, uh, throughout all of Angola, but particularly in southern Angola, is that um, Portuguese settlers reached for modernity in radio, in motor cars and small planes, not to mention in the very idea of civilization. Whiteness as an orientation made using these objects and ideas natural, comfortable, and unselfconscious. Sound requires its own kind of orienting. One turns to the radio, turns attention to some sounds and not others. The cultural worlds that settlers in Angola built around radio, aviation, and motorsporting marked their difference from Africans, 
from the Portuguese in the metropole and brought them closer to other Europeans in the region. Turning to the radio, they extended whiteness into the soundscape and produced social comfort in sonic terms. The way whiteness worked in late colonial Angola oriented Portuguese settlers to certain sounds. New technologies reverberated with modernity. Whiteness put items within reach. Settlers used them to define a whiteness that arced away from continental Portugal. White settlers made decisions about where to turn their ears in attention and where to direct the sounds they produced, whether locally, in the region, or back to the metropole. De jure definitions of whiteness afforded protection and put things in reach. It remained to settlers to delineate the practices and contents of whiteness and to become white through social and cultural practice. Portugal constituted part of Europe, Europe's southern rim. I think what's interesting about that, well, many things, of course, are interesting. One of the things you point throughout is that Portugal is kind of a, a second-class European country in the, in the first place, that it has already a kind of inferiority complex when it comes to whiteness. Yes, that's true. And in fact, the Portuguese looked to the colonies, particularly in the the second half of the 20th century, while they're defending their colonial territories. They looked to them as a way to make their case for being part of Europe. Um, But not only in Europe are they sort of second-class Europeans, um, but we see that in other places. So, for example, in the Southern African region, um, the Portuguese in uh, South Africa constitute a white population, but a kind of marginal white population, a kind of ethnic white population, along with Greeks, um, Mm. Lithuanian Jews, Mm. and Italians, for example. So in in a way, Portuguese is trying to have uh, a slave culture and a a colonizing culture to give themselves a, a sense of superiority then as well. Absolutely. This is not uncommon, I assume, for even those first-tier Europeans. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but you say white settlers make decisions where to turn their attention as well, and you already begin to, again, um, start to make a distinction in the book between settlers and Portugal itself, that there is there's an attempt to, to create identity there uh, as, much as, as much apart from Portugal as, as uh, sort of defining themselves in the region. Right. So what we see with Portuguese settlers, and they arrive at various points between the late 1700s uh, or even earlier, um, and the the twentieth the middle of the twentieth century in various waves and under different kinds of conditions. But we find so we find people who have are have been white Angolans for generations. And if the Portuguese were sort of second-class Europeans, white Angolans were second-class Portuguese. Mm. So the fact of having been born in the colonies and being white made you a second-class Portuguese citizen Mm. um, and put you on the margin of Portuguese society Mm. um, for various reasons, sometimes because they used very early on, they used Angola as a kind of penal colony. Mm. And later um, they would, you know, push off the dregs of society, but also political um, people who were political dis- dissidents from Portugal. So there was also a kind of political um, carefulness around um, the settlers in in Angola, in particular. Mm. So, um, so, but increasingly over time, what we see is that these people come to, you know, numbers of these people, certainly not all of them, a fraction of them, come to identify with the land. So in the same way that, that um, whites in, in southern Rhodesia see themselves as Rhodesians and, and develop a distinct identity, mm-hmm. white, uh, Angola, white Portuguese settlers in Angola, many of them come to see themselves as white Angolans mm. and develop um, distinct political movements. Mm. And one of the things you're talking about here is the way technologies help uh, create those those senses of, of identity in this place. Uh, radio clubs you talk about, modernity happens in terms of technologies here and co- collapsing space 
with these technologies. Um, radio, uh, airplanes, uh, things of this nature really make uh, m- sort of make the new Angolan, I suppose, or the new Portuguese Angolan, and they club around these identities. Exactly. So they use these technologies to collapse space, you know, to conquer space, uh, radio through sound. And fast cars. And aviation and fast cars through um, through motorsport, which has interesting implications. In fact, I've, there are lots of photographs of the motorsporting stuff that you can find online, mm. including one that I saw from the 1970s of a guy wearing an Indiana University t-shirt. Nice. Obviously, in some <laughs> association, probably with, you know, oh, the Indy 500 and right, things like right, that. Right, right. Um, but the idea was that Portugal was a was a fascist state and mm. that there was they and uh, white Angolans, as they came to identify themselves, found more freedom on the edges of empire, and they used these different technologies to assert mm-hmm. that. And in the case of, of motorsport, as uh, my friends um, Marcelo Bittencourt and Victor Mello, who are Brazilian historians, argue, um, that they're able, this also helps develop the local bourgeoisie, right? Local sure. companies sponsor local drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a whole kind of white mo- motorsporting culture that would bring drivers in from Portugal, and drivers from Portugal were Portuguese drivers, but white mm-hmm. Angol- um white drivers from Angola were known and understood themselves to be white Angolan drivers. Hmm. It's fascinating. So this is also this is the sort of the futurism era too, right? So this is where all this is happening across the globe as well. And we can think of our own attention to motorsports during this period and into the '60s and '70s, obviously, as well as like Steve McQueen and movies like Bullet and those kinds of things. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so it's we're gonna have to br- take a break now. Uh, you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our song during the break. I'm gonna ask Marissa to do it. It's the Limba. Do you remember? Do you remember who's who's? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is a song by a band called called Negoleros do Ritmo, and they were um, an important band in the 1960s and 1970s and um, had a kind of ironic or or paradoxical, maybe we should say, relationship with the radio. Uh, So more with Marissa Mormon on radio state power and insurgency in Angola in the years 1931 to 2002 when Interchange returns. Oh, my God. 
on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is about the intimacies and uses of radio for political purposes. My guest in the studio is Marissa Mormon, whose new book is Powerful Frequencies, Radio, State Power, and the Cold War in Angola, 1931 to 2002. In this segment, we'll turn to the ways the state seeks to counter the insurgent nationalist interest in Angola. So um, you begin uh, Chapter 3 with a quote from a novel. Uh, Marissa, it's, Is all the enemy's propaganda false? If it were, it wouldn't have any credibility with the people. The, con- the colonialist has gotten over the initial phase of stupidity when everything he said was ridiculous. Today they've learned lie in the abstract with true things. In- lie in the abstract with true things in the particular. Did that make sense? Did I say that right? Okay. Um, so is that a true lie? Is that one of those categories that we have to think about what, what lies are true or when, tr- <laughs> when, li- when, when truth is a lie or... Um, I'm not sure. I think the idea is to to complicate the notion of of propaganda mm-hmm. uh, and to show that in fact the ways in which people lie have to or propaganda only works if it's based in some form of truth. So mm. Paulo George, who was a broadcaster on um, Angola Combatente, which was one of the liberation movement's guerrilla radio stations, uh, said to me once, "I learned to kill people in Algeria." Um, by which he meant, he did not learn to take up a gun and kill people, (laughs) but he learned to um, kill people. He said, I learned to kill people with a pencil. Hmm. And that if we were told that the death count in in an attack was three, we would slightly alter the numbers so that it would be seven. Mm -hmm. It needed to be an odd number and it needed to be not too far from the actual number, but Mm -hmm. it needed to be bigger. Hmm. Interesting. The psychological aspects of that, right? Seven, three. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, let's go ahead and just jump right into another reading. And, and there are acronyms in this particular uh, piece, MPLA and the FNLA. Do you want to say what those are before we read Sure. It? So in 1961, an anti-colonial war exploded in Angola against the Portuguese, obviously. That at first involved two uh, liberation movements, the MPLA, which was the popular movement for the liberation of Angola, and the other movement was the FNLA, the National Front for the Liberation of Angola. In 1966, five years later, UNITA, the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, joined the fray. Um, but these, the first two movements, the MPLA and the FNLA, both had their own guerrilla broadcast. Outfits mm, and there's the secret police in here as well. The secret police also, yes. The um, the the direct translation is the International Police for the Defense of the State, mm. more commonly known um, as the PED or the secret police. Great. Okay, so this is um, this is Marissa Mormon again reading from her book, Powerful Frequencies. Immateriality, intimacy, and transduction characterize the radio. Sound waves travel through the ether, diminish distance, and banish time. Radio broadcasting can connect across an empire despite miles and time differences or stitch together white settlements in a far-flung colonial territory as member-based radio clubs in Angola did. But those invisible sound waves could create intimacies of a different stripe as well. Guerrilla stations, based in exile in sovereign African states, existed beyond the jurisdiction of colonial law, but within the broadcast range of the colonial state and the territory it claimed. Herein lies the power of the immateriality of radio, shortwave in particular, to disrupt and to unnerve. It is unruly, does not respect borders, runs roughshod over the sense of inviolable national territory. 
Broadcasting anti-colonial propaganda, the stations of the MPLA and FNLA put the colonial state and its police and military on edge and on the defensive. Guerrilla broadcasters caught the state off guard and drew its attention to listening practices. If reports of Musek dwellers, Museks are informal neighborhoods in the capital of Luanda, if reports of Musek dwellers owning radios abounded and PEED officers nervously repeated rumors that some homes had two, one in the front tuned to the state broadcaster and one in the back tuned to Brazzaville or to the MPLA station, then hidden listening inside and outside the home was rife. Plenty of Europeans and black civil servants listened quietly in their homes, too. The capacity of radio broadcasting to produce unity and intimacy meant that it not only conquered distance, but created seclusion in intimate listening spaces, where listeners imagined similar scenes in the neighbors' homes or in the homes of people in the territory's other towns and cities. One military report noted the MPLA's programs, NPLA's programs quote-unquote electrifying effects. Technologies do not determine outcomes, but how they operate has material consequences. Mm. Again, that's Marissa Mormon reading from her book, Powerful Frequencies. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about radio in Angola. Marissa Mormon is excuse me, Associate Professor of African History and Cinema and Media Studies at Indiana University. So that one uh, tells us a little bit about uh, how already the state, uh, uh, the Angolan state, uh, has had to organize, uh, I guess, around a uh, an insurgency that's already nascent at the time, right? So there's well, the yeah. Portuguese colonial state yeah, in sorry. that place, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the colonial administration in Angola. Yes, and in fact, one of the things that's interesting in the way this connects to the earlier conversation about whiteness and radio clubs mm-hmm. is that the Portuguese settlers in these clubs were quite advanced, you know, in terms of the kind of broadcasting that they were doing. And the broadcasting that was going on in Angola by these Portuguese settlers was much more interesting and much more dynamic than the broadcasting that was happening in Portugal Mm -hmm. to such an extent that they they could actually pay to have journalists come through um, from the metropole, essentially. Um, What happens is that when the war breaks out, the state finds itself kind of caught on its back foot um, because it needs a, a... broad-ranging propaganda program that, that's both in print and in sound, um, and they don't really have a way to do that. They've opened up a national broadcaster, what they call the official Angolan broadcaster in Luanda, but it's not very good. It's never as, as interesting as what's going on in the radio clubs. Mm. And so they're, they have this then very reactive response. When they're responding, they have to do something better than the clubs, and they have to respond to the fact that from the mid-1960s, the MPLA and the FNLA are broadcasting. So their sort of state propaganda and their use and growth of this uh, national official broadcaster in Luanda is really based on um, responding to these guerrilla radios. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the the state at the time is is not not well versed or not able to understand the psychological aspects of the technology at the time. Their reports uh, or their particular news items or whatnot are read. They're even their propaganda is stiff. It's nobody's going to pay attention to it one way or the other, right? So and and as opposed to the MPLA and FNLA having uh, knowing what they're doing. 
Exactly. Yeah. So the MPLA and FNLA have the have a certain advantage. I mean, they not technically, but in terms of being able to capture people's interest because mm-hmm. it's illegal to organize politically within Angola in the late colonial period. Um, of course, it would have been you could be arrested if you were caught listening to mm-hmm. those two radio stations. So it, that also created a kind of um, aura around the idea of listening to them. And the state broadcaster was completely boring, as you were saying. Like they were just they had no sense of how to write good news <laughs> and so people and people it sounded too official sounding so they right. needed to up their game and one of the things that they did and this is where the song comes in is that they opened up a, uh, or they started another program that never officially was housed um, as a program within the, the the official broadcaster but sort of existed on its on the margins of it um, and that that program was called Voj d'Angola or the voice of Angola mm-hmm. and it um, used Angolan broadcasters, African broadcasters who spoke African languages, uh, namely Kimbundu and and Umbundu, and they played lots of Angolan music. And the idea was that this would be a way to capture the attention of of the Africans who lived in the territory and convince them that Portugal really did care about them, that Mm. it cared about Angolan culture and things like that. So the music that you heard was by a, a band that emerged in this period in time, and they would have been against the colonial state. Um, But they said, well, let's use their radio to promote our music. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. And the state itself was happy to allow it as well? Yes, because they didn't really, they didn't think that music was powerful. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. as long as they they didn't have directly political lyrics, they Mm -hmm. completely missed the boat on how it was that this new form of music was mobilizing people, Mm, essentially. Connecting them. And yeah. connecting them to one another. Exactly. Yeah, one of the points you make, I think, throughout is is that this is happening across borders, right? So the the um, broadcast can um, can come from uh, other other countries, other states, right? Exactly. So yeah. the the MPLA is broadcasting first from uh, Congo Brazzaville, and the FNLA is broadcasting from Kinshasa, mm. uh, and later on the MPLA opens up another broadcaster in Lusaka. Now these are, in terms of geographies, then uh, on the border of Angola? They're bordering, yeah, they're, they border mm-hmm. Angola's um, northern and eastern um, sides. Mm. So it, they can, you know, with shortwave radio broadcasting, people can hear them. Mm. Shortwave is, uh, we need to probably talk about that too. So it, it does uh, sort of open capacities uh, to cross law, law, large distances, uh, but it's spotty sometimes, right? Right, because it, uses, it has to bounce off, you know, the ionosphere. So that allows it to extend its range, um, but it's much less stable. Mm. Um, and so it can often, and it's easier to interfere with, and it, it's much more subject, of course, because it's going up into the ion, mm. ionosphere for it's much more subject to, to weather interference and mm. things like that. Is it also, so there are, is, there's no real schedule to this, is there? Like, the, or they, is there? No, the guerrilla radios had very um, distinct broadcasting times. You know, every people, in fact, people remember, mm. you know, that they used to listen to Angola Combatente, which was the MPLA's broadcast, you know, at 7 or 7.15 at night. Yeah. Right, and that you hid in the dark of a soccer field yeah. with a, listening to a transistor in your car, or you hid under your bed, yeah. and you d- you tended not to listen with other people or only with people who you absolutely trusted sure. and who whose p- politics you shared. Nice. Well, let's take another break. I'm going to force uh, uh, Marissa to, to introduce it again to us. Not force, because because that's not proper. I'm going to ask her nicely. Yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. So it's time for another break. This is Weya by Manu Dibongo. Stay with us for more with me and the role of radio in creating a national identity in Angola when Interchange, ret- interchange returns on WFHB. Thanks, Marissa.
And support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and a sense of place at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm, and with me in the studio today is Marissa Mormon, IU Associate Professor of African History and Cinema and Media Studies and author of Powerful Frequencies about the uses of radio in Angola, both for and against the state and empire. Empire seems like a, a, a pitiful word when used for, I mean, Portugal itself seems like a pitiful empire as it confronts itself in this situation. I don't know, is it is empire a thing for Portugal? I mean, it, it was, was, it was and it, continu- it, was, and it continues yeah, to right, be. Right. If you've ever visited okay. uh, Portugal, oh, okay, you know good. that okay, there's still like a, the monument to the discoveries and oh, all okay. these kinds of things. Okay. Yeah, and they still talk about this stuff. There's mm. a lot of contestation around the question for obvious reasons mm. um, and necessary ones. But yes, it continues to be a por- important. It's a ridiculous thing I said. Obviously, Portugal was one of the major, you know, slave trading uh, countries uh, in the world, um, yeah. and clearly reached everywhere. Um, it was as Luanda was like a port out to 
to Brazil as well for absolutely Luanda and Benguela were were two of the key um, trading ports. So people were enslaved in the interior, brought to the coast, um, and Luanda is you know exact. I think it's the exact same latitude as Recife in Brazil. So Mm. it was quite they could make that passage because of the way that winds blow uh, fairly efficiently between Angola and Brazil in particular. Mm. And so uh, obviously Brazil is a Portuguese um, speaking nation as well. So there are overlaps here in some sense? Many overlaps. And in fact, much of the slave trade um, that took place from Central Africa and from those ports in Luanda and Benguela was run by Brazilians. Hmm. Uh, So um, let's also do this. Uh, I I asked uh, while the music was playing, I asked uh, Marissa the the population. There's kind of a, it's hard for me to get a sense. Who who are doing the radio clubs, uh, white settlers or Portuguese settlers? When does the the guerrilla radio, is it entirely um, Africans are listening to guerrilla radio? Is there a, a space in between where there are people sort of on, or there's Portuguese uh, a, uh, Angolans who are kind of uh, a mix of the, the the two as well that are listening more to the guerrilla radio than the state radio as well? So population and how these kinds of um, these listening practices are playing out within, within the, the state itself would be interesting to know. So first, how many how many people are generally in Angola at the time, I suppose? I can't, to, to be honest, I don't remember ex- the exact general population. It's in the low millions. Okay. Uh, Portuguese settlers constituted about 5% mm-hmm. of that population. And they uh, um, were the second largest white settler population on the African continent outside of South Africa mm-hmm. at that moment, meaning in the, you know, in, by the mid 1970s, mm. when Angola becomes independent, so they were a real force, and they were, a, you know, it was a white settler colony, mm. like Algeria was, like Kenya was, like South Africa, um, and Southern Rhodesia were, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's important. It's important to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. So, but we, what we have is that these settlers, um, you know. Are, begin to develop their own culture um, to a certain degree and, and a separate kind of politics as well. But everybody was listening to the guerrilla broadcasters, of course, because they had ban- been, you know, they were essentially um, banned. They, the state didn't want people to listen to them. So everybody wanted to know what they were saying. There was a tremendous amount of censorship. It was a fascist state mm. engaged in a war and censorship was profound and real. And so even Portuguese settlers who supported Portuguese colonialism wanted to know what the MPLA was saying and what the FNLA was saying on their own terms so they could make their own interpretations of it. Mm. And so that you know, obviously stoked interest in listening to those broadcasts and, and Africans across the territory listened to it. And people were interested in the, in listening to the broadcasts of different movements and hearing a different opinion. Hmm. Well, uh, so you begin chapter four, this is uh, nationalizing radio with a story about the radio program. Kudibangela. I could have tried that one. Kudibangela. Um, which uh, was, is pretty fascinating in itself. I'm going to go into a, another reading from that uh, section because it deals with the song we just listened to as well. Yes, but let me preface it by saying, yeah. so in um, Angola, the MPLA declares independence in Angola on November 11th, 1975, mm-hmm. um, and immediately a civil war breaks out, but the MPLA is, is in control of the state. Um, so what this chapter deals with and what happens after independence is... Um, the development of of state and national radio broadcasting in the context of a civil war. But first, in the very first few years of independence, there's also the development of dissidents within the MPLA or people who have disagreements over what 
popular, what they call popular power should look like, how government should operate, who should get to participate, who mm. should be in the party, um, what policy should be like. Well. And there are very vibrant debates going on at this time. But given that there, you know, this is happening in the in the context of a civil war with another party, in this case, UNITA, the MPLA responds very badly. Mm. Um, uh, and there's an attempted coup and then a purge in the party, a very violent purge in which um, somewhere between 3,000 and 20,000 people were killed. And they still don't have good numbers on that. So that's the sort of lead into this um, section. Wow. Um, so the the radio is born, and the Angolan state, New Angolan state, and nation is born in, un, under, under these very complicated circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll start reading here. A December 1975 decree turned the colonial radio into a national broadcaster, but it was the events around 27 de Mayo, or the 27th of May 1977, otherwise known as the attempted coup, mm-hmm. that consolidated the radio as an organ of the MPLA party and state. It might seem inevitable, given the success of a guerrilla broadcaster like Angola Combatente and the way it made the colonial state bristle, build, and bellow, that the MPLA would would turn the official Angolan broadcaster to its own purposes without missing a beat. It did not. The Ministry of Information's December 8, 1975 decree renamed the erstwhile colonial broadcaster as Radio Nacional de Angola, or Angolan National Radio, and gave it the call sign from Luanda, capital of the Popular Republic of Angola. This is Angolan National Radio Broadcasting in connection with the National Network of Transmitters. It restructured the broadcaster, though actual change occurred only after the violent, messy purge and centralization of state and party power in the wake of the 27 de Mayo. The events of the 27th of May forced the party leadership to realize how much they needed radio expertise. In consequence, President Agustino Neto appointed a professional from the late colonial period to the directorship. Radio Nacional became a high-functioning state institution between the late 1970s and the early 1990s, when new laws liberalized media in the lead-up to the first election in 1992. The nationalization of radio is a story of continuity. Personnel from the colonial period, the use and completion of infrastructure built in the late colonial developmental counterinsurgency phase, and the continued beating on the propaganda drum. It's also a story of change rupture in the MPLA, novel kinds of programming, new international partnerships, and experimentation that Manu Dibango's WEA announced. It is a story of institution building under dire economic circumstances and political centralization. This is a story of how state employees negotiated professionalism, elevating technical skill and expertise, and party loyalty, the the demand to follow protocol to perform fealty in ever narrower terms. Mm. So um, if you don't mind, uh, Marissa Mormon, again, this is Marissa Mormon with us in Interchange, uh, talking about radio in Angola in the Cold War era of last century. Um, Go back a little bit, if you don't mind, this period of civil war. So this is post-Salazar, 
the the dictatorship ends, um, and then there's kind of how, how does it end in the first place, I suppose, or how does the the transition begin, and then it becomes a civil war between two parties or multiple parties um, trying to vie for their particular power in the region. Are they at the same time all like um, guerrilla radioing against each other at the same time? Is like that happening too? There's not not so much in the period of the war. A little bit mm, they attack okay. each other. Those two guerrilla radios will attack each other as much mm-hmm. as they'll attack the Portuguese. But what happens is that there's a military coup in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the these the war in Angola and the war in Mozambique and in Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau uh, was, some people describe it as Portugal's Vietnam, mm. right? So people got tired. It went on for a long time, from 1961 to 1974, okay. when this military coup occurred. Um, no mistake that it's the military. You know, they're, they're tired of fighting this war. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Portuguese are sick of seeing their children come back in body bags from mm-hmm. places that are very, very far away and they don't really know very much about. So that that forces decolonization. Um, it obviously had everything to do with the fact that um, Angolans, Mozambicans, um, and people in Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau were fighting for their independence, right? That basically it pushed the system to its limits. Mm. But that led to a process of decolonization. In Angola, there was a transition. So the three liberation movements become political parties, um, and there's an attempt at a uh, a tripartite government between 1974 and 1975. And basically, the Portuguese leave, the Angolans, uh, the MPLA declares independence, and the civil war breaks out immediately mm. between the MPLA, which controls the state, and UNITA and the FNLA, which you know claim to declare a capital and a different nation in central Angola. Mm. That very quickly collapses. The the FNLA, um, the FNLA, and you need to come into conflict. The FNLA is militarily neutralized, and UNITA becomes becomes the main opponent of the MPLA controlled state. Mm. That's why I guess um, it's confusing for, for, for... It's very confusing. So then the MPLA <laughs> takes over the national broadcaster, okay, or it right. takes over what was the official broad, broadcaster and turns it in to a national broadcaster. Yeah. But then at the beginning of that process, very early on, two years, less than two years into independence, there's this attempted coup, um, and that those, those dissidents within the MPLA mm-hmm. are crushed. Mm. Um, and it's really that that brings attention to the importance of radio because while the MPLA had had this very successful guerrilla radio station mm-hmm. and we would, might assume that they would take the folks from that radio and put them in the radio station, that's not what they did. They gave those positions away as kind of um, political promises, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you had non experts, non-professionals running the radio station. Yeah. Most of the broadcasters had, some, had had some training. Some were still there from the colonial period were some white Angolans mm-hmm. um, who decided to stay, supported Angolan independence and wanted to be a part of it. Um, but what happens is then um, this group, which is this dissident group, has this radio program. That radio program get, gets is banned um, by, by NETU and by the MPLA. And then when the coup is, the, the morning of the coup, of course, one of the places it happens is the radio station and they play the the call sign for that show Kudibangela, which is this you know a few bars of this Manu Dubango song Wea that you mm-hmm. just heard, mm. and people realize you know at five thirty in the morning, wait a second, something's up. We haven't heard that mm. in two years. Oh. What's going on? Mm. Fascinating. Interesting. Well, uh, it's time for our final break. Believe it or not, we're cruising through the hour. Uh, this is 
Semba Praluanda by Paolo Flores. When Interchange returns, we'll talk about the Cold War in Southern Africa. Stay with us. Change also comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the hyphen uptowncafe.com. segment with powerful frequencies author Marissa Mormon. We'll focus on the Cold War in Southern Africa. Uh, we're gonna let's jump right into a reading, uh, Marissa, because uh, it's getting late in the day, and I want to make sure we talk about this. The song we just heard uh, again by uh, Paulo Flores, um, Semba Praluanda. A semba is a kind of uh, music itself or a dance? It's, or? A, it's a genre of Angolan mm-hmm. music, okay. the genre that emerges in the late 1960s, early 1970s. <laughs> so let's go ahead. Oh, go ahead. And you can set it up if you want, but you talk a little bit about the song in this part we read, or you're going to read. I'll just jump right into yeah, the okay, reading. Yeah, okay, go. So at Nelson Mandela's 2013 memorial service, the MC Baleka Mbeti, who was Speaker of the South African Parliament, introduced Cuban President Raul Castro with the following words, quote, Comrades, we will now receive an address from a tiny island, an island of people who liberated us, who fought for our liberation in the Battle of Quituquanavale, the island of Cuba, unquote. With verbal economy, Mbeti noted one of the key expansive effects of Cuban intervention in Angola, a place where the Cold War went hot. If Boleca Mbeti made a big claim for a small island, Angolan musician Paulo Flores' song, Semba Praluanda, from 2016, is similarly bold. He sings Angola back into world historical significance. 
he sings, it was in Cuando Cubango, Cuito Cornavale, that we wrote the history of the world after all. In this 2016 semba, a form of urban popular Angolan music, Flores, a child of the 1980s and 1990s, sonically remembers this battle and contextualizes it in the world of song, a world of cultural producers. Semba para Luanda, with its complex polyrhythmic structure, evokes Angola's post-independence, civil war, and its Cold War context. Lilting and danceable, with only a few lines directly about the war, the music catalogs important musicians and carnival groups from Angola's post-independence period. The sound buoys hopes about regional liberation and solidarity to counterpose the sacrifices of the period, food shortages, losing children to the war, and bombings of Angola's south. With these lines, Flores intones pride that Angolans' otherwise destructive civil war harnessed high ideals. Ideals that had a positive impact in the region at a moment when the whole world was watching. Penned in 2016, this is an assertion about the collectivist and public-minded values and gains of the Popular Republic of Angola against the post-2002 oil boom republic's individualist ethic. These lines of Semba Perluanda recall the revolutionary socialism that emanated from Radio Nacional d'Angola, among other places, from 1975 until the late 1980s. The song evokes how radio's work imprinted minds and music and how propaganda intersected with people's convictions. Mm. Thanks, Marissa. Again, Marissa Mormon reading from her book, Powerful Frequencies. So uh, we have Cuba here. We have um, revolutionary socialism, and we have the loss of that particular uh, ethic, I suppose, uh, that moral viewpoint of the world in this in this one song and in this uh, this nice piece of reading you did from your book. Uh, so Cuba is involved in, at what time in, in this situation? Cuba gets involved in Angola in 1975, mm-hmm. right around the period of independence. So the MPLA is only able to declare independence because it captures the capital, Luanda, mm-hmm. um, and that is made possible by the fact of Cuban troops with the support of Soviet arms mm-hmm. um, and the um, and together with the, the Angolan army, they're able to hold off FNLA troops that are attacking from the north, coming towards Luanda from the north, who are backed up um, with CIA money mm. and support from Mobutu's Zaire and okay. his army. Mm. Um, from the south, <laughs> they're holding off UNITA troops who are um, being shored up by South African troops. So they're mm. literally, literally South African troops um, in Angola supporting UNITA. Mm. Um, and and the MPLA declares Angolan ind- independence under those conditions. And obviously, as I said before, the civil war breaks out immediately. Hmm. So that's really a fascinating triangle, I suppose, right? The, uh, who's who's fighting who and the proxy for, for those particular states as well, right? So that's part of this issue, part of how we try to understand these wars. These are resource wars to superpowers, right? Uh, but these are you know, wars for people. <laughs> they're wars for, right. yes. Right. At that point, they're, they're, well, they're ideologically di- driven. Um, they're, you know, they're about resources, but they're also about the, the resource of, you know, uh, political loyalties, like mm-hmm. being able to say somebody's on your side. Right. So that's quite important. And it, and it, um, it fractures this whole or resounds literally throughout this whole region of Southern Africa and, and to the Angolans, to the MPLA, they describe it as the, the second war of liberation. It's the war against imperialism mm-hmm. and imperial intervention. Mm. So, uh, Cuba, uh, is, is, um, 
siding with the what is considered, I suppose, the actual Angolan state or and and with the people themselves from Angola versus the uh, other um, powers that came from um, I forget what you said Zaire? South Africa South Africa uh, which is backed by the US at the time I believe as well but uh, CIA backing um, I forget what you said so the CIA backed initially much earlier on mm-hmm. um, in the late ni- beginning in the late 1960s the CIA backed both the FNLA and UNITA ah. uh, they had the the MPLA would have taken US support you know they reached out sure. to the United States but they were rebuffed of course because they uh, they were a socialist mm. party and so they had other allies, uh, namely Cuba and the Soviets. And we know from the work of Pierre Glygesi, who I know you've spoken to mm-hmm. here before on Interchange, that you, and among others, that the Cubans were really acting at their own behest. They were not sent there by the Russians. The Cubans had their own reasons for intervening in Angola, which were both political and historical, because many Cubans were had been enslaved and brought across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are lots of Afro-Cubans and many of those people trace ties, you know, saw the, the importance of this being an African country and a Central African country. Mm. Now, um, with the few minutes we have left, maybe a minute and a half we have left, uh, address this last part where you talk about the change from 2002 forward with the oil boom and the change in, in perhaps the way the, the country uh, and its leadership has, has moved. So... Well, it's a lot to talk about, but <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> so what happens is that in you know the war ends um, in two thousand and two. The war does not end um, in nineteen eighty nine, for example. So it was not simply a Cold War war. Um, in other words, that that Angolans had their own reasons to be fighting, and they kept fighting. The MPLA state kept fighting with UNITA rebels until um, two thousand and two, and since that time, and actually earlier, really beginning in. Um, in the late 80s, the uh, the MPLA changed their um, their political economy, opened themselves up to the market, um, mm. and they've largely controlled the entrance of capitalism oh. into the country. So, in the in the same way that we see the Chinese state has a, a okay. kind of controlled form of capitalist growth, okay. Okay. Um, and that ele- eventually they defeated UNITA militarily mm. in 2002, um, and that's led to you know kind of a lasting peace, um, and then an oil boom because the war was finally over and that encouraged investment. And now, you know, the economy is tanked mm-hmm. um, since 2014. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to close. There's a lot to learn. Uh, so, of course, you didn't learn nearly anything tonight, even though I hope we give you some uh, some glimpses into a very interesting book, really well-written as well. There's lots of fun radio uh, banter in there, too, uh, using words like crackling and things like that in your text. <laughs> it was really fun, Marissa. Thanks for joining us. That's our show. We've barely scratched the surface, of course. Our closing song is Kuka. Kuka, yeah, which is the name of an Angolan beer. Mm, by Batida? By a Portuguese Angolan, Angolan Portuguese outfit called Batida, yes. Okay. And it's a critique. It's a it's like kind of progressive rap that critiques mm-hmm. the state of things after 2002. Mm, combining samples from old 1970s Angolan tracks with modern electronic dance music. Uh, thanks to Marissa Mormon, Associate Professor of African History and Cinema and Media Studies at Indiana University, author most recently of Powerful Frequencies, Radio State Power and the Cold War in Angola, published by Ohio University Press. Thanks, Marissa. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm at Producer Interchange. Bryce Martin is our studio engineer, and Jar Turner is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. 
mas show de cu. Conta bolota, não dava um choque sem que os instrumentos não tivessem sido devidamente e antecipadamente consumido e esvaziado de seu conteúdo. Só então, cacimbados, embriagados e descomplexados subiam no palco para causarem Yeah. 